0: Father, we're grateful this morning for the goodness of Jesus Christ, for his perfection that is granted to us freely, not because we worked at it, not because we're good, not because we try, but because you are good, and because of your grace, you have chose us and called us to your Son, so that in Christ we would be made right with you. What a beautiful gospel, God, it's totally free, we don't deserve it, we haven't earned it. We offer you literally nothing and yet you choose us and you love us and you use us and you grow us to become more like you so that we could spend eternity in your eternal, never-ending pleasure and joy. We're so grateful. I pray that our lives would be a reflection of that gratefulness and the thankfulness we have for you. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. So we're in Colossians 12, or sorry, 4. And last, we're in verses 12 through 18. Except last time I preached, we covered verse 14. And so we're going to skip verse 14. And that's just a greeting from Luke and Demas. And we talked about that. But uh, this week it'll just be the rest of this text to finish out Colossians. So now that we've arrived at the end of Paul's letter... In this final greeting from Paul, we find some truth that encourages us as well as some truth that challenges us. But overall, we see Christian love for the church that Paul examples for us and we see unity in that love for the church, unity among the brothers, among the people, among the churches, because there's several churches mentioned here. And this is a unity that we will experience after this life is over. And in this life, what we're doing is we're working through, by God's grace, and through our failure, our constant failure to to do it right, but God continues to correct us and change us and grow us into expressing that unity in this life. So ultimately, Paul's letter ends with this general idea that we are all supposed to fulfill the ministry that God has given us in faithfulness. God has called every one of you to a ministry. It doesn't have to be like an officially sanctioned church ministry, right? Like Drew is sharing when he's talking about the kids. He's like, are you gonna, how, do you share the gospel with people? God's called every one of us to the ministry of, of evangelism. Oh, well, I don't have the spiritual gift of evangelism. It doesn't matter. I don't have the spiritual gift of encouragement. I still have to encourage you. <laughs> so we all have to, uh, we all have a certain ministry. Maybe yours is evangelism, but all of us are called to something. All of us are given gifting, uh, a gift that we are to use to bless others, to show others Christ, and primarily within the church, among each other. When we look at the New Testament, We see most of our gifting is used within the body as we see in ephesians 4 the purpose of those gifts are to be used in the body is to equip the saints for the working of ministry and so there are certainly ways in which and certainly gifts that are used in the church and outside the church and there are certainly ways in which our gifts can be used in both places but ultimately every one of us has been called to some sort of ministry we're all to minister to one another Maybe it's serving in children's ministry or being a teacher or leading a Bible study or praying, for just maybe just feel like God is, all God has told me to do is just pray for everybody every day. Maybe you have a prayer ministry. You don't have to, it doesn't have to be like, hey, Pastor Mark, can we start a prayer ministry? I'm like, first of all, don't ask me to pray. Just pray. <laughs> you don't need my permission to pray. And if you want to get people together and pray, go ahead and pray. So all of us have some sort of calling. Maybe yours is you just feel called to clean the church or be a sound man and run the soundboard, or fix the building or teach. And God will gift you. God has gifted you some way, shape, or form, and that gifting is meant for a ministry that he's calling you to. And so what we're told in Scripture is, do it. Do that ministry. And the whole point here at the end of Colossians is there's this general idea that whatever that ministry is, we are all supposed to fulfill that ministry that God has given us in faithfulness. That's the key, in faithfulness. We are to be faithful to the call that God gives us. That seems like a simple truth, right? Right? Like, fulfill the ministry that God has given you by doing it faithfully. That's a simple truth, right? Knowing that truth is easy. But fulfilling that truth requires endless dedication to Christ, reliance on the Word of God, having the, and being filled with, as Paul says in Ephesians 5, being filled with, which means constantly being filled with the Spirit. And, and mostly, just total dependence on God. And with total dependence on God, you will be in the Word. You will be filled with the Spirit. You will be dedicated to Christ. So it's easy to know that we've got a ministry we must do it. It's hard to do it. Lon knows he's got a ministry fulfilled on Sunday mornings. Well, do you think there are some Wednesday afternoons when he's got to be here at 4.30 for practice he's, that he's like, whew, not in the mood today, but i got to do it probably not, Lon, but right, we all have a ministry that we're like, I love this ministry, I want to do it, but then the day comes and you're like, oh man, I got to do it today. It's hard, it can be hard to do it. Easy to know, hard to do. And we'll talk about this as we get near the end of the sermon, how we do it, even though it's hard. But either way, we can't do it on our own. We cannot do it on our own. And there is great joy There's great joy in knowing that in Christ, not only do we not have to do it on our own, but in Christ, it's already done. That's the beauty of the gospel, is that in Christ, your ministry is already done. I don't mean finished. I mean, the work that you're about to do is already set before you. The path is already paved. As Paul says back in chapter 2, verse 6, So walk it. So walk in Him, and in Him is that path. And Ephesians 2.10 says that God has prepared for us works. He's already prepared before the foundations of the earth, before the world began, before He created anything. He had already prepared for you good works that you should walk in them. That's a be- that, that means it's done. It's complete. He's already got it figured out. Our responsibility is to be dependent on him, to fall in the arms of Christ, to look to Jesus as everything and anything and all our things and everything that we are in him, to be in the word, to be in prayer, to dedicate our lives to him. And it can be hard, but there's a great encouragement in knowing that when I feel like not doing it, it's already done. That makes the walk so much easier. It's so much easier to walk on a path in the forest that's already been cleared. It's a lot harder to be in the shrubs with a machete trying to clear a path to yourself. That's hard work. So there's a great encouragement that we have a responsibility to fulfill our ministry, but the beauty of the gospel is Christ already fulfilled it. So we get to verse 12 and verse 13. And Paul writes, Epaphras, that's a man, Epaphras, who is one of you, a servant of Christ Jesus, greets you, always struggling on your behalf in his prayers, that you may stand mature and fully assured in all the will of God, for I bear him witness that he has worked hard for you and for those in Laodicea and Aeropolis. So, a little background on Epaphras. He was a faithful evangelist. As we talk about faithfully fulfilling your ministry, Epaphras is a great example. He was the first person to preach the gospel in Colossae and all the surrounding areas like Laodicea and Aropolis that Paul mentions here. The establishment of these churches is due to Epaphras' ministry. He is essentially the father of this church. He started this church. He's the one. Paul did not plant Colossae, he didn't plant the church in Colossae. Epaphras did. And then Epaphras reports to Paul what's going on there as Epaphras is away from Colossae when he writes this letter to the Colossians, which is why Paul reports to the Colossians how Epaphras is doing. So the Colossians hear this report on Epaphras. That's a great encouragement to them. I mean, that's is, this is a deep relationship here. This is the guy who started this church. He was the first man to preach the good news of Jesus Christ to these people. They'd never heard that before. And they hear Epaphras preach it. The Holy Spirit falls on them. They believe. He becomes a a significant figure in their lives. Now he's gone. Paul writes a letter and says, By the way, Epaphras, your dearly beloved friend who brought the gospel to you, he's doing great. And specifically, he's praying for you. So it's likely that the Colossians had held Epaphras in high regard because he's like their original church father. But Paul does something that God also does. He shows no partiality. He doesn't exalt Epaphras in some great way, like, oh, the one and only great Epaphras who brought the gospel to you. He doesn't treat him like that at all. What does he say? Epaphras, who is one of you, one of you, in chapter 4, verse 12, a servant of Christ Jesus. One of you, a servant of Christ Jesus. Clearly... The Colossians are not like Epaphras because they are not running around planting churches all over like Epaphras did. Yet, yet, that is Paul's point. That regardless of what God has called you to do for him or regardless of what ministry has called you to do, we are all equally on the same plane and that plane that we are all equally on is defined by Paul as a servant of Christ Jesus. But Paul does not disregard that tight relationship between Epaphras and the Colossians because Paul goes on to tell them that Epaphras is always struggling on your behalf in his prayers. That's how he's serving Christ. Epaphras isn't telling Paul, hey, Paul, tell them that I I said this and that and I'm giving them instructions and directions because Epaphras, like the rest of the Colossian church, submits to the authority of the apostles and the Holy Spirit and the word of God. He's just like them. He might have brought the gospel to him, but he's not special. I think of myself as like an Epaphras. I preach the gospel to you. I have a unique and different role than you, but I'm just like you. We are all servants of Christ. We just have different ways of serving him. And so... There's this non-partiality and equality be- between Epaphras and the Colossian church. And yet Epaphras shows, and what Paul shows, is that Epaphras does have hold, hold for the Colossians a unique and great place in his heart. Like, I love the church. I love the church, you know. God's people all over the world. We're commanded to pray for one another. We should be praying for the church universally. We should be praying for Christians who are suffering in foreign countries. We should be praying for one another. When you hear things are, things are rough at another local church, maybe a few towns away, we're like, oh, we should be praying for them. And that's true. And I love the kingdom of God because I love Christ and I love the, the king of the kingdom. But you know what? There's a special place in my heart for you. You know, like I love you more than I love the people I don't know, right? And that's natural and normal. And so Epaphras has this this special place in his heart for them, and it shows up in this really cool way that Paul says he is always struggling on your behalf in his prayers. This word struggle in Greek literally means to strive earnestly. Epaphras' love for the Colossians is clearly genuine and he makes every effort to pray for them. That's the point. He's just like, I care so deeply about you. I just am, am praying for you at all times, whenever I have a chance. Paul wrote his letter to the Thessalonians. He says, pray without ceasing. Be thankful in all circumstances. That, is, totally, encapsulates, that totally encapsulates all situations, all time, everything. And Epaphras lives that out. And his prayer is good. It's a good prayer. It's a prayer we should copy. It's a prayer we should be praying for one another. It's a prayer we should be praying for this church. And this is his prayer. That you may stand mature and fully assured in all the will of God. There's nothing here about justification. He's talking to people who he, know of, he knows are already saved. So there's nothing here about them getting saved because Epaphras is sure of their salvation, which is why he says he wants them to stand in full assurance. He's sure that they're saved, and he wants them to know and be fully assured that they're saved. Epaphras' prayer does not concern their justification. It concerns their sanctification. What Epaphras prays for is, is that which we ought to pray for each other, and that which I am always praying for you, that you would stand. That's, that's the key in this text, that you would stand. The Greek word for stand means hold your ground. Uh, when Paul uses, in Ephesians chapter 6, Paul uses kind of like a military metaphor to talk about uh, the shoes of the gospel. And, and, and it kind of equates it to like this, like all the pieces of the armor of God in Ephesians 6, six are like soldier equipment. So it's like the soldier analogy that he's creating. And what soldiers would wear in their shoes were spikes. So they'd have their shoes, the regular shoes, and then they'd put spikes through the bottom of their shoe into the ground so that when they go into battle, they'd be able to hold their ground. Because most battlefields, were muddied and destroyed. And even if it wasn't muddy, it was still loose soil and destroyed ground because thousands of men are trampling on that ground, breaking it up and making it hard to stand. And if you're charging into a group of men with swords, you don't want to be falling because then you die. So they put spikes to the bottom of their shoes It would help them hold their ground. And that's the same principle that's established here, that in our faith in Christ, we want to stand And it applies both to your maturity, which is your spiritual growth, and your assurance, which is a part of your spiritual growth. But that assurance that Paul's talking about is he wants you to be absolutely, totally, and completely certain of your eternal security in Christ. Because if you're not eternally, absolutely, and totally, and fully sure that you are saved in Christ not because of your works but because of who Christ is and what he's done for you and because of the grace of God that he has given you faith to believe if you're not sure of that then what's the point? Because if you're not sure of that you know what you will try to do? It's natural it's our flesh it's who we are it's our sin if you're not sure of who you are in Christ of how, how that you're justified and saved by Jesus alone, not your works, but His, then what you will try to do is earn your salvation. You will try, naturally. You might not even realize you're doing it. You'll try to please God for security in your salvation. You cannot please God for your security. We are commanded to please God with good works and obedience as a product of, of our salvation, as a product of being justified, as a product of who Christ is in us. Jesus is in you if you have faith in Christ. The Holy Spirit dwells in you. The power of the Spirit is to work out the rest of your life into maturity as obedience. And that obedience is an expression of what God has already secured for eternity. And if you're not sure of that secure point in eternity that you are saved forever in Christ by his works and his works alone and not yours, if you're not sure of that, you will try to earn it on your own. And that, biblically, is sin. Instead, when we have this encouraging reality that I know what Christ has done for me, Paul says in Romans 8, we are more than conquerors. He doesn't stop there. He doesn't say, hey, you're more than conquerors. Good job, way to work hard. He doesn't say that. He says, you are more than conquerors in Christ Jesus, because he did it. And that security is a motivator toward obedience, toward this maturity, and toward that full assurance that we have. And so to kind of take this phrase that Paul talks about, this, this prayer that Epaphras has for the church, this prayer that I have for you, to kind of reword it to make the, the sentences uh, kind of make kind of clarify, sort of an interpretive rephrasing of the sentence. I'll say it like this, what Paul's saying. What Epaphras is praying, what we should be praying for each other, is this. We must stand mature in all the will of God. And we must also stand fully assured in all the will of God. So we must stand mature, that means grow in the will of God, and be assured of the will of God. Standing mature and standing fully assured are two different concepts, but both find their footing in what? In the will of God. Meaning the way in which we mature and the way in which we we feel secure and assured of our salvation, the way in which that happens comes from knowing God's will. And God's will is revealed in his word. This is why I will refuse to ever stop telling you to be in the word. Even if you spend 12,000 hours in the word or whatever, I don't care, all of every second of your life is in the word. I'm still going to encourage you to be in the word every day, all the time. Because that is how you grow. That is how you gain that assurance. That is how you know who you are in Christ and who you are without Christ. That's how you recognize your sin and are humble. That's also how you recognize the glory of God and the goodness of Christ to redeem you and to use you and to work in you, to change you and to grow you. It's everything you need to know about God and yourself and the world and the people and the church and the order of the church and the structure of the church and what we should do and what spiritual gifts are and how we should use them and should we give and how much should we give and should I serve and how should I serve and who's to preach and who's not to preach and who's to teach and who's not to teach and all these instructions in the bible and we just kind of choose whatever we want because we've heard it said here and there throughout times we kind of formulate our own theology because we're not in the word that's what happens if we're not in the word which is why i'm constantly trying to encourage you always be in the word so your maturity and your assurance of who you are in christ comes from this book because this is the only communication god has left us with and that's Paul's, that's Epaphras' prayer for the church, is that you would be sure that you're growing, that you would stand in, that, in the will of God so you could grow, that you would stand in the will of God so you would be sure of who you are in Christ. So Epaphras' prayer for the Colossians and my prayer for you and our prayer for each other is that we are in the word of God and know the word of God so that we fulfill what Paul says the purpose of the church is. What is the purpose of the church? We find it well, we find it, in lots of different places and, and there's lots of different ways in which to answer the question, what is God's will for the church? Because there's lots of wills that God has for the church, right? But ultimately this kind of big picture as you're living your life as a believer and looking toward the end, uh, what's the point? Why are we here? Why are we part of the body of Christ? Paul kind of gives us a really good idea and Ephesians 4, verses 13 through 16. Ephesians 4, 13 through 16. I'm actually just going to go back two verses. To verse 11. So we'll just do 11 through 16. And he gave the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the pastors, and teachers. Pastors and teachers, there is really one role. It's the pastor-teacher like shepherd, preacher, pastor, teacher. So you've got apostles, prophets, evangelists, and pastors. Verse 12, here's their purpose, to equip the saints for the work of ministry. So my bu- my job, my calling, it's not, I don't believe it's a job. Um, I don't believe that pastoral ministry is a job. I believe it's a calling. I don't like calling it a job. It's not a profession. It is a calling. And my calling is to to this congregation to this church body is to this is my primary calling there's other parts of my calling and it's it's pastor christian's calling as well to equip the saints that's you for the work of ministry and what's the purpose of you being equipped for the work of ministry for so now this becomes your responsibility once you're equipped here's what you become for building up the body of christ That's what we're trying to avoid. That's why we feed you the word so you would know sound doctrine. You wouldn't be swayed by false doctrine, by bad teaching and false interpretations. Of course, we aren't perfect, okay? But, but the whole point is to have sound doctrine and with sound doctrine, you know the will of God and now you can fulfill your ministry to build up the church, right? And we don't want to be thrown around by bad doctrine. So Paul says in verse 15, rather, so this is what we're supposed to be, Speaking the truth in love. We are to grow up in every way into Him. So there's a command for the church. Speak the truth in love. Why? So that you would grow up in every way. Where to, though? Just grow up? Is it enough to just say, grow up? No, that's not enough because He says, grow up into him that's Christ who is the head into Christ verse 16 now he's going to talk about Christ from whom the whole body that's all of us joined together joined and held together by every joint that's all of us we're all a different part of the body joints and marrow and Legaments and whatever, are held together with which it is equipped. That's him equipping the church with gifts and with different people with different gifts so that this growth can happen in Christ and we can reach back in verse 13, mature manhood or the mature stature of the fullness of Christ. And then he goes on in verse 16, the middle of 16, when each part is working properly. Stop! Now there is a condition involved. When It's not a certainty. I mean, it's a certainty in God's mind, but from our perspective, there's a lack of certainty here. He says, when each part is working properly, it makes the body grow so that it builds itself up in love. You have a role, which is to build up the body of Christ in love by fulfilling your ministry faithfully. And you can't if you're not growing. That's the picture that Paul paints here. I give the church... God says, I give the church Christ and through Christ, I give the Spirit, and the Spirit pours into the church. Different people with different gifts, so that they can fulfill their ministry. So that the church can be equipped to serve one another and grow and spread, and that that ministry would cause the church to mature and grow into the stature of who Jesus Christ is. And here's the beauty of that: that sounds like hard work, and that's a lot of pain, and it's going to toss the life of difficult things. It's going to be hard; work. it will be difficult, and there will be tons of challenges involved in that. And it's never easy; nothing's ever easy. And, you know, anything that's ever worth doing is probably going to be hard but the beauty of the gospel is that it's promised to us that it's already done that the ministries called you to has been paved and the completion of that ministry is already finished and the reality is if you're a believer in jesus christ regardless of how you live this life your eternity is secure in christ but then the scripture's filled with commands and how we should live and that be, what believers will look like and live like and serve like and give like and that we will prove that faithfulness. And that's why we the bible's full of commands and we would go and do these things. But that it also has this counterbalance that is like, yeah, I mean you have to go and do these things, but keep in mind that God's already done them. This isn't dependent on you. And that's why Paul says God made me suffer in 2 Corinthians 1, 8, and 9. That's why Paul's like, God made me and my other apostle friends suffer greatly to the point where we wanted to die. Why? So that we would depend on God. And then when Paul finds dependence in Christ, he doesn't go, now I have the strength, now I'm good enough. He goes, no, Christ is good enough. And now Christ will walk this path for me. That dependence is huge if we're going to mature. So we have to have this really healthy balance. It's very difficult to find a really healthy balance because we are naturally in our flesh going to get a little off balance every day. Sometimes we're overly like, oh, I don't have to do anything because God saved me. It's like, that's not what the Bible teaches. Or like, oh, I have to do everything to prove I'm saved. It's like, God doesn't teach that either. It's, it's a balance. It's, and it's really hard to just think about like you're teetering on a, what do they call this? teeter-totters, Right? And you've got that fulcrum in the middle. And you get your feet on both sides. And you're like, ah, ah, ah. Right? That's the Christian life. It's like, you know, I'm too dependent on myself. I'm so dependent on God, I'm literally not doing anything healthy. You know, it's like this back and forth. It's really hard to find that balance. And guess what? That's why we have each other. Like, that's the beauty of the church. You can come to me and be like, you're not doing that right. And I'll be like, all right, I'll fix it. But I don't know how. And you're like, well, I'll show you how. how. And then... That's why you have, go back to Ephesians 4, that's why you have pastors, apostles, teachers, preachers, whatever, because you have specific people gifted with spe- specific things. I'm up here singing worship on the worship team. I'm not really a part of the worship team. Lon's the worship leader. They've got a great worship team. I get to join them. I'm sitting here singing. I'm like, man, I'm tired, literally, just so tired. And I'm like, and now I've got to preach today, too, and I wasn't planning on it, and i got to do music, and then we get done with the first song, and Oliver's like, good job, Mark! <laughs> I was like, "What a gift from God! You have no idea how much I needed that." I don't need a bigger head, but I needed that. And it's just, it's just—you see how God orchestrates the balance that we need, and it's really hard to find. And that's the whole purpose of your Christian life—to to constantly find that balance. And guess what? If you—if I told you to stand on a teeter-totter and keep that thing level without touching the ground on either side, and said, "Now stand there and don't move for another," 45 years. Do you think maybe in like a couple of weeks your legs are going to be tired? It's exhausting. It requires endurance. And it, it can be hard. And some days it's easier and some days it's harder or whatever. But we need each other. We need to encourage each other with you need to keep going. And we also need to encourage each other sometimes with it's already done for you. So we can find that balance. Now, moving on in Colossians, verse 15. Paul ends his letter. We get to the very, very end of Colossians. He says, "Give my greetings to the brothers at Laodicea, and to Nympha at the ch- and the church in her house. And when this letter has been read among you, have it also read the church of the Laodiceans, and see that you also read the letter from Laodicea, and say to Archippus, see that you fulfill the ministry that you have received in the Lord. I, Paul." Write this greeting with my own hand. Remember my chains. Grace be with you. What is clear in this final greeting is that, is that the churches were not like our churches today. Like, there's a big difference between these early churches and our churches, obviously. This is the beginning of the church ever. This is the first of all churches. Things just look different, they're just getting started. They don't. Even know all the rules yet. They don't have all the letters from the apostles. We've had Paul's letters and Peter's and John's letters and the Gospels. We've had all the New Testament for a couple thousand years. We've got 2,000 years of church history and people interpreting these texts for forever. Thousands of years. And then you're born into a church culture in a specific place that has a specific interpretation of the text. They didn't have that in the first century. It was totally different. They're like, okay, I believe. Now what do I do? And Paul's like, I'll write you a letter. And he writes him a letter. And he's like, this is how you should behave. And this is how you should live. And God orchestrates certain situations that happen in certain churches so that Paul writes certain things to deal with those problems so that the church universally, all of us, would forever have all the instruction we need to be godly people. To have the right order, the right structure, the right teaching, the right doctrine, and the right practice. In the first century, you've got a bunch of people who just got saved. We read in Acts, once these people get saved, it's just, it's, it's, it's so different. than it it is now for us. We were just in Acts, and we were in Acts 8, and we kind of went over the way that the Holy Spirit falls on believers in Acts. Sometimes it's through baptism, sometimes it's laying on the hands of the, the apostles, lay hands on someone and the Spirit falls on them. Sometimes it's just preaching, sometimes they just hear the gospel, and they believe and the Spirit falls. There is no rule, there's no form, there's no structure to how the Holy Spirit falls on believers at the early church. So who knows how the Colossians experienced that, or one Colossian experienced it this way and another Colossian experienced it that way. But what we know now that the New Testament's complete and we have all the letters from Paul is that every time every person who gets saved is saved strictly and only by the Holy Spirit. Right? We see this in 1 Corinthians 12, 3. And so the Spirit does the work of providing us with the gift of faith by indwelling us and giving us the gift of faith with which by, by which we believe. And when we believe... The Spirit teaches us, right? And we start off as like baby, you know, we call ourselves baby, oh, was a baby Christian, right? Because we're like newborns, and that's what the, the, the phraseology that Jesus used. You need to be born again. And so we're like newborns, and the Holy Spirit's a great teacher, and he teaches us one step at a time. You don't, you're, you don't have a baby the next day, just like, you know, try to make him walk, Right? You treat them like a baby. You cradle them and cuddle them and keep them safe. And then a year later, they start walking. And then, you know, six months later, two a year later, I don't know, they start talking. And all of a sudden, you just see this maturity slowly grow. And that's the Christian life. That's why that analogy is used in the Bible. And so that's a slow process that takes place in a lot of people's lives. But in the first century, that was a fast process. And it kind of happened rapidly. And these people are like, ah, what do we do? And so, like... They had just a totally different experience of what it's like to be the church than we do. I heard the gospel from the day I was born. I was re- I was, my parents got saved like right when I was born. So my brother and sister, I'm the baby of the family, if you haven't noticed. My brother and sister uh, were, were born and my parents were not saved. And then my parents got saved and then I was born. So I was born into a Christian home. My mom shared the gospel with me when I was six because for six years before, or whatever, a couple years before that, all I did is just get, what's all this Jesus stuff about? We were in church all the time. We were at Bible studies and whatever. Like, I grew up in that. There isn't a single adult in the first century church that heard the gospel from these apostles that had any concept of the gospel in the way that you're born into. So it just creates, it's just a different culture. And then what they had then is absolute, this is a key, they had absolute unity in doctrine. Because they only had one letter from one guy and it was sent to one church. And Paul said, like he says here, make sure the Laodiceans read your letter and make sure you read their letter because these truths need to circulate. All the churches need to be unified by my teaching, says Paul. Because Paul knows what Peter knows, which is all the teaching from Scripture comes from the Holy Spirit. That's 1 Peter chapter 1. So, verse 20 and 21. So, there was a perfect unity in the beginning of the church. Well, what's happened over a series of thousands of years is humans have kind of taken over. You know? Some of them not believers. Some of them believers, but not, they have the Holy Spirit, but they're not filled with the Spirit like we're commanded to be. Or... wonderfully awesome, filled with the Holy Spirit believers. Variation of all those things and they all come up with different interpretations of a particular text. Well, it means this. No, it means that. God's sovereign. No, he's not. God knows this. No, he doesn't. Jesus like that. No, he's not. And you end up with heresy and false teaching or you end up with two different teachings that are both, that neither is heresy or a false teaching, but they're different. And because of that, you end up with different churches with different doctrines, practicing different ways and church just looks different. And then you've got this incredible amount of sin that takes over as like the Roman Catholic Church in the early years really wasn't focused on Christ himself. That, church does, that, that Catholic Church was focused on owning the world through the Roman culture. And, and then that's why we're going to show Luther tomorrow night because after hundreds of years of the Roman Catholic Church not actually being the church... But just trying to be dictators of a culture because they wanted to rule. Martin Luther reads the Bible and he goes, you know, it's funny. They don't let us read the Bible. And I'm reading the Bible and I'm going, this is not matched with what the Roman Catholics are saying. So he comes up with 95 theses that are like, you're wrong, you're wrong, you're wrong, you're wrong, you're wrong. This is what the Bible says. Nails it to the church in Wittenberg and says, and then sends it to the Catholic authorities. And from that moment on begins the Reformation and the pulling away from the Catholic Church. Protestants pulling away from the Catholic Church. And that's why we have churches like ours today. And all of us are just simply trying to figure out what the Bible says. And the reality is you can't know what the Bible says if you don't have the Holy Spirit teaching you. And in any ways in which one of us is wrong, God's grace. God's grace on all of us. But there are things that are explicitly clear in Scripture that would be wicked. If you tell me Jesus isn't God but you're saved, you're not saved. You have to believe Jesus is God because Jesus says that. He says, if you don't believe in me, then you don't know the Father. And if the Father, my Father is not your Father, he says in John 8, then Satan is your father. So there are doctrines that are significant and matter absolutely. I always use Jesus as God as an example because it's a no-brainer for us. I don't want to bring controversial ones, right? But there are other ones that are a little more controversial that may be a matter of whether you're saved or not or may not. It depends on the doctrine. But after thousands of years of millions of people trying to figure all this stuff out, we got different churches. We've got Baptist and Lutheran and Methodist and Catholic and whatever, Everyone experiences church differently. I mean, that, that could be bad and that can be good. So I'm not saying either way. There are benefits to that and there are also not benefits to that. Because the unity they experienced universally was unlike what we have today. But what they did have is something very similar to what we have now, which is different churches in different locations, which was needed because not all of us are going to drive five hours to our church, right? Right? We go to the church in our local communities and as this gospel spreads and more people believe, you need more churches to feed those people. That's why we have churches grown. That's why church planting is so important. So despite our differences, and despite the fact that we don't have absolute unity universally right now, so we don't have this absolute universally, we don't universally have unity in Christ not all believers believe the exact same things. Now, we could harp on that reality and what that means and what we should do, and I could be like, well, these are all the doctrines you should believe. But here's the beauty, and this is really what Paul's getting at. There'll be a day when we are all united in Christ in perfection for eternity, and no one's going to be arguing about doctrine. We're not gonna be like, oh, do you believe in sovereignty? Oh, do you believe that Jesus is this or even we're not gonna be debating the character of Christ. We're gonna be in his presence being like, Oh, all of us had something wrong. All of us had some imperfection in our doctrine. Doesn't matter, don't care about that. That's in the past. I am here now, united with every believer in eternity, worshiping Jesus for who he truly is. There will be no debate. And that's the hope, that's the blessed hope we have, that the return of Christ ushers in the perfection of the church. So despite our differences, all of God's children in Christ will one day be perfectly united, not only in doctrine, but united perfectly in peace and joy with one another. Now in verse 17, Paul makes this command to Archippus, and he says, Fulfill the ministry that you've received in the Lord. And that's really unique. He calls out this one random guy, Archippus, we know nothing about. Some people think it might be um, Philemon's son. However, we don't know anything about him. And, and Paul calls this guy out publicly. He says, oh, by the way, specifically, when you read this publicly in front of all the people, have Archippus fulfill his ministry, and then Paul tells them to read these letters out loud. That'd be like me coming up here and being like, I'm going to pick on um, Bo, and I'm going to tell Bo how to live his life. Wouldn't Bo be super embarrassed? Sorry, Bo. He's probably embarrassed already, okay? And I was like, Bo, and I like directed Bo in front of all of you. Bo would be like, oh my goodness, right? He's already feeling that and haven't said anything to him yet. <laughs> so that's what he does to archipists, is He calls them out in front of everybody. Now, The reason that there's, like, there could be a couple reasons why Paul does this. Number one, everyone knew Archippus had this ministry and he was making sure that it was done. Or, so there's like this accountability. Or Archippus wasn't, he was doing it or he wasn't doing it. That's the reality. And either way, Paul calls him out. It's kind of embarrassing, but the point isn't to embarrass Archippus. The point is to hold Archippus accountable. And the embarrassment that he's probably feeling a little bit, maybe Paul's not aiming for embarrassment. We, whatever Paul is doing, we, he knows what he's doing. And we don't know Archippus or what's going on to know enough, but if he's trying, if he's trying to, to eke out a little embarrassment, the point of that embarrassment is his humility. He's not trying to make the guy feel stupid in front of people. He's trying to give Archippus a sense of humility, which is required for him to fulfill his ministry. And that's the heart of what's going on here is this this idea that all of us are called to something. All of us are called to a role and to do something in the church. All of us are called to fulfill our ministry, to perform what God has called us to perform in faithfulness, even if it costs us greatly. And we know that it costs Paul greatly because he finishes his letter with these words, Remember my chains. He's imprisoned. What Paul means is that they should recognize that his ministry to build the church cost Paul his freedom. And that's what he's saying. It might cost Archippus some, too. Hold him accountable. It might cost you something. Hold you accountable. It might hurt. I'm going to hold you accountable. The Bible commands. God commands. That's what the Christian life is like. We need to hold each other accountable. It's going to be hard. It might hurt. Paul's in prison. He ends his letter very specifically with these words. Remember my chains. That's a way of saying, remember it will cost you. But the point isn't that it will cost you. That's not the point. Here's the point. is that Paul's an eternal perspective. The point is, and if you heard that, but you're not hearing this, then you're missing the message. Hear this. Paul is encouraging the truth with that. Paul is encouraging the church with the truth that whatever it costs to follow Christ is worth it. That's the point. He's worth it. Maybe it costs you very little. Maybe it costs someone else a lot. Who knows? God has called everybody to something different. But whatever it costs, it's worth it. It at least, it at least will cost you your pride. It will at least cost you, you, God will spend some humility on you. It's at least going to cost you the pains of maturing and growing up, at least. And Paul says, but it's worth it. Remember my chains doesn't mean, here's the big picture, it's going to be hard. Remember my chains means, remember that it cost me, but it's worth it. What a great encouragement. And that encouragement, in the, if you're balanced, if you're on that teeter-totter and you find this wonderful balance between I have a responsibility to obey the Lord and I also have... Uh, this great joy that Christ has already done all the obedience for me. He's fulfilled my ministry. I can't do any of it on my own. Even if I do it right, it's him. If I do it wrong, it's me. And if I get too overbalanced one way or the other, I end up really actually getting out of balance. And regardless of whatever that is, Paul says that endless life of struggle where your calves and your quaws are just exhausted because you're constantly trying to be balanced and your mind's exhausted, your body's exhausted, your spirit's being spent, and going to church all the time is hard and doing all these ministries cost time and energy and and i just i don't know if i want to keep going man i just want a break from the body i want a break from the bible i want a break from prayer just a break from god you don't need a break you need more of him and this is when when you're balanced you don't feel like you need a break from god the church or the body or the word when you're when you're imbalanced is when you feel that need and that's why the church exists To go, oh, let me help you. I'm going to lift this side of the teeter-totter a little bit and remind you you've got a responsibility to obey the Lord. Oh, you're over here. Let me lift this a little bit and remind you that you're working too hard and you're not depending on Christ. He's earned it for you. We have to keep that balance. And keeping that balance is hard. And Paul's saying, it's so worth it. This is a guy who says in 2 Corinthians, I was caught up. I was a Corinthians. 2 Corinthians, I was caught up in the third heaven. Paul had a revelation, he was caught up. Paul had several revelations of Jesus Christ physically showing up to him to teach him, which Jesus no longer does. But Paul has seen the glory of God. He's seen the glory of the resurrected Christ. He comes back and he goes, I have to write letters. You guys you're not gonna believe this! Okay, first of all, you guys who believe in this thing, your doctrine, terrible, bad. Here's what you should believe, and this is how you should live. Go, send that letter. Go, Timothy. Go send it to everybody. Okay, Colossians, here's what's going on. There's a heresy going on in your area. I'm going to write about this, and I'm going to tell you how awesome Jesus Christ is, and that he's way better than that terrible heresy you're hearing. Now, okay, uh, take that, Tychicus, take this letter and go give it to the Colossians. Paul sees the glory of Christ and goes, guys, no matter what you're going through, I'm in prison. It's worth it. I promise it's worth it. James says, "Life is but a vapor; here today, gone tomorrow. The flower comes and the flower goes; it fades, it dies. Whatever. That's us, just whoosh, whoosh, gone. We think this life is so important, in the span of eternity, we're a blink of an eye. Not even. Whatever it costs today, worth it for me. And that's Paul's point. It's just, it's worth. It doesn't matter. On the days when it's easy, enjoy. Enjoy that God is." graciously gifted you with ease. Days when it's hard, depend on Christ. Either way, no matter what your life is like, it's worth it. It's worth it to have Christ. It's worth it to stand on that teeter-totter and, and, and work hard at that balance. It can, it can be exhausting at days. And again, when the church comes along and they go, you know what, I'm gonna help you out. I'm gonna lift you off that, I'm gonna, I'm gonna lift you up and I'm gonna hold you and I'm gonna stand on the teeter-totter for you. I'm gonna keep your life balanced because I have the gift of encouragement and you're struggling. I'm going to encourage you today. You have the gift of, or, 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 or you're teeter-tottering because you have bad doctrine. And I have the gift of teaching. So I'm going to teach you the truth today and I'm going to hold you up. Whatever it is, we need each other. We absolutely need each other. Which means the person sitting next to you is going to have a harder life If you don't help them. So whatever it costs you to help them, it's worth it. So, therefore... We press on, we finish the race, we fight the good fight we endure because we know that, listen, we know that our, pa- our master, our master Jesus has prepared an eternal place of perfect pleasure for those whom he has perfected. So church, be encouraged as you struggle through life knowing that it is God who, who works in you, God, who works in you for his good pleasure and to his perfect will to do something to magnify his glory in making you like Jesus. So we can press on. We can fight the good fight. We can finish the race. We can endure because God has put his spirit in you to accomplish his will. And though we pursue perfection every day, This is awesome. Listen, though we pursue perfection every day, you won't do it well and you won't do it right if we don't know that we are already perfect in Christ. Meaning though life can be a struggle, our encouragement to continue comes from knowing that the fight that we can fight was already fought. The race that we can run was already won. Our ability to endure was already finished. When Jesus said on the cross, to tell us die, it is finished. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you. You're so good, and we don't deserve you. And yet, you give us Jesus. You give us a perfect God, a perfect man to cover our sin, to be a substitute, to die the death that we deserve to die. When you look on the cross, Father, you see my wickedness. When you look at me, you see Christ. That's not fair. I don't deserve that. I deserve death. By your grace, you've given me life. Let me spend, let us spend the rest of our life in gratitude toward you. Not just growing for our sake to know you better but growing for each other's sake like you sacrificed for others let us sacrifice for one another and remind us that even if that's hard it's totally worth it a lifetime of an eternity more than a lifetime an eternity Father of endless joy and pleasure and glory that you're going to give us we love you we thank you in Jesus name